When it comes to scents, you should pick ones that smell like, well, you. Target gets it, which is why they offer a range of personal care products with fragrances for everyone. Be true to floral you with Dove Peony and Rose Body Wash. Live your fresh life with Degree Ultra Clear Deodorant. Express your decadent side with Love Beauty and Planet Coconut Shampoo. This spring, choose care that brings you joy beyond labels. Pick up new favorites at a Target near you or online at Target.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax. It is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist. You're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic so that you can stay informed, prepared, and calm. We are still all in this together, my friends. More than 3.7 million people have now been infected with the coronavirus in the United States, and more than 140,000 of us have died. That's 700,000 more infections than since our last coronavirus episode, and 10,000 more deaths. This is serious business. This is the nature of everybody's favorite mathematical pattern, exponential growth. All right, all right. With an increasing number of people getting infected across the U.S., what we have learned about treating COVID-19. One old idea that's getting new traction is called convalescent plasma. Now, blood plasma is essentially every flowing, saltwatery thing in your blood that doesn't have blood cells. And convalescent just refers to people who have recovered, who are recovering from being sick, in this case, of being sick with COVID-19. So today I'm joined by Dr. Convalescent Plasma himself, Dr. Arturo Casadevall. He is the Chair of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Casadevall, welcome to Science Rules. I cannot help but note that you even have convalescent plasma in your email address. May I say, wow, and may I say, uh, may I ask rather, can I call you Arturo? Yes, of course, Bill. Uh, I had nothing to do with that. What happened was that in March, uh, as we began to deploy convalescent plasma, my email became unmanageable. So I asked Hopkins to take my name off the of the websites, and then my assistant just made up convalescent plasma. And I like that it. is my new email address. But <laughs> hopefully, when things come down, I can go back to my regular email address. So when things calm down, you think things will calm down, and you think convalescent plasma is a big part of this? Calm yeah, I'm an optimist. I think we will beat this virus. I think that all the indicators are that the vaccines that are listening, neutralizing antibodies, people who recover have neutralizing antibodies, and that, uh, you know, the, the brunt of biomedical research is focused on this virus, and I think humanity will defeat it. 
So one of the questions that's emerged of late is that uh, people who have the antibodies don't remain immune. Do you lose your immunity? You know, for some viral diseases, immunity wanes. An example of that is norovirus. Uh, you can get it over and over again. For other viral diseases like measles, you get it once in your life and you're protected the rest of the time. We don't know where this virus is going to be. So we only known this virus for seven months. But I'm encouraged by what I see in the response of people who recover, a mounting neutralizing antibody. And if this can be maintained, I think there is a good likelihood that they will be protected. So how does this work? So when you, when you get a vaccine bill, you make your own antibodies. And when you get convalescent plasma from a donor, you get in the antibodies that they made. So it's relatively simple. People who get sick with COVID-19, the majority recover. When they recover, they can donate their plasma uh, to help those uh, who follow them. And, How do I uh, get plasma? How do I separate cells from plasma? Uh, then- this is uh, the technology is very advanced. You go to a transfusion center and they have an instrument called a plasmapheresis machine. And basically your, your plasma is separated. You won't even lose your red cells. You, you don't become anemic. You don't become depleted in any way. So this machine carefully separates them. Now what happens? Almost like a filter. Then you take that and you put it into bags. And uh, one person can usually donate two to three bags. Large people can donate four bags. These are pints? What are they? Uh, they're about a cup. It's about 200 to 250 milliliters. So the way to think about it is about a cup. And uh, each one of them can treat one person. So one person who donates can help three, two to three people. So if we had it organized... As more and more people get sick, we'd have more and more plasma, and then fewer and fewer people would get sick. Absolutely right, Bill. In fact, when, we, when this all began, there were very few people who could donate. That was back in March. But as unfortunately, as more people have gotten COVID and fortunately have recovered, we have a large pool of potential donors today, although they're coming under stress because of the surge down in the, in the sun belt. Uh, when you say the surge, the surge of people getting sick. Exactly. Uh, the, the basically the, the increase that we have seen in the last four weeks. Uh-huh. So uh, I just think about this, you know, blood transfusions when I was a kid had a, uh, mixed reviews. They were a little bit dangerous. And my understanding, this goes, this really goes back to World War One. People were messing with this. Is that right? Absolutely. In 1918, uh, they didn't even have supplemental oxygen to give you. But the doctors began to use convalescent plasma. They took blood from soldiers who recovered. They recovered from the, the Spanish flu? Yeah, the Spanish flu. They spun down the red cells and they took out the liquid and they gave it to people who were sick and they dropped the mortality by about 20 to 30%. And uh, it, a lot of people used it and it's been used in many epidemics. You bring up a good point, though, the point of the blood safety. So I agree with you. Blood safety, as you know, uh, there was a concern in the past of bloodborne pathogens, but uh, we have learned a lot in the last few decades. The blood is tested for HIV, hepatitis, viruses, all the pathogens that we know. The blood banking uh, industry is the most regulated industry, and uh, they have very safe protocols in place. Is this more or less effective than vaccines? It's different. Uh, vaccines, when they're effective, prevent disease. This is for the treatment of established disease. 
you, you, you so it's a completely it's in a different dimension one is prevention the other one is therapy all right so you're let's say i'm infected and my body i presume is trying to make antibodies it's working at it now you guys come along and inject plasma with somebody else's antibodies are there any incompatibilities or does one thing lead to another help the other? No, the, the major incompatibilities that you check for is you got to have the same ADO blood groups. You got to have the same blood type. But what happens is that it takes a while for you to make antibodies. Uh, most people who got COVID-19 it may, it may take two weeks to make antibodies. So if they get sick early and you provide them with antibodies, you're providing with a big help to the immune system. One of the things that we learned that is fascinating is that even if you give it after they have their own antibody, that you appear to get benefits, and the benefits are that it clears the virus. What that suggests is that the antibodies that you make early are very different than the antibodies that you make late. With late antibodies, the convalescent antibodies being much better. Oh, they're, they're more sophisticated. They're dialed in, maybe. Exactly. There is a mechanism of sophistication called affinity maturation, which you make better antibodies as time goes on. Does it make an array of antibodies? It's like a shotgun. Here's a bunch of antibodies, and the ones that work best then get selected for, but that takes a couple weeks. You're right. You, uh, you said it very well. When you first start, you make a lot of antibodies, and then there is something called affinity maturation, which the best antibodies get selected on so that your late antibodies are better than your early ones. Okay, so I'm a patient, let's say, hypotheoretically, and I go, I'm, I'm feeling symptoms, I go to the hospital, and you happen to hear about me, and you have this serum available. What happens? So whether, whether you get serum or not is currently at the discretion of your doctor. Uh, some doctors are using it earlier, Others are using it, for example, only if you get if you look like you're going to deteriorate and are going to intensive care unit. And some are using it later. Our indications are that the earlier you use it, uh, the better. Uh, and I think that that is a message that is gotten around to doctors. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of communication around this. Um, so the the ideal will be to use it earlier to try to head the disease from getting worse to a point in which it lands you in the intensive care unit. So you guys poke a big needle in my vein and drip the stuff in. That's the idea, right? You put it into the IV. Any, if you get admitted to the hospital, you're going to have an IV. And all it needs to be done is it needs to be put in the IV, and you don't even know that it's going on. You don't even know it. It's nothing to it. All right, so why are there different standards is it up to individual physicians to decide whether or not somebody gets it is there some sort of are you all working on some sort of national standard or the word everybody loves is protocol that's right i think that we are trying to figure out a national protocol the fda for example is is looking at this carefully and we anticipate that they will come out with recommendations in the future but right now you know it's still experimental and it's still there is a lot of judgment that goes into physicians. What sort of judgment? Let's say here I am, I'm Uncle Bill. I'm, what decision would a physician make based on my fever? They will look at, actually, the, the, I think they would worry more about your re- breathing rate. They will worry more about how much oxygen you need because the fever is not really what's going to kill you. What really, what really kills people is that they cannot oxygenate. 
So when you see a patient, for example, requiring more oxygen, breathing faster, the fact that you cannot compensate with that, that's an indicator that they are that they could get into trouble and they, and they may need a respirator. So somehow the Jewish Orthodox community got started on this, right? Yes. And in fact, that's a wonderful story that I'm happy to tell you about. The Orthodox community was hit very hard in New York in the early days. So they, um, this is in March, and they had a lot more people recover and, they or, uh, and, and be, to be potential donors. And they organized uh, themselves and put forward so many people to donate plasma that they were able to provide initially the New York City and then much of the country with some of the convalescent plasma that was available in March and April. And it, um, I think we all owe them a, a great uh, gra- gratitude for, for uh, this effort because a lot of people receive plasma because they volunteered and they went there and they, and they donated it. So the, the scale of this, of uh, using blood plasma, convalescent plasma, people convalescing to address COVID-19, why don't we do this with every virus? Or do we? That's a very good question, uh, Bill. Prior, to, prior to, to March, we did not have an infrastructure in the United States or anywhere for using convalescent plasma because this therapy had been abandoned in the 1950s. It was used in the, between, in the first half of the 20th century. One of my hopes is that as doctors have gotten used to this, that we will be able to maintain the capacity to do that. For example, when Zika virus came uh, a few years ago, there was a lot of discussion about reviving convalescent plasma, but it never, it never got done because it just takes a huge organizational effort to identify people who can donate, bring them in, collect the plasma, distribute it to what is needed. And all that is in place now. Well, yeah, I was going to say, it seems it's a huge effort, but compared to having trucks full of corpses, it seems like a pretty good deal. So uh, let me ask you this. Is a machine a limit? The filtering machine, the separating machine? Is that what's holding us back? You know, initially, when, when, it was, when the process was going on, yes, there were limitations. But I would say that today, that's not the case. The Red Cross is collecting plasma. Hospitals can collect plasma. Uh, the uh, New York Blood Center continues to collect plasma. There's a tremendous effort in place. So I think that at this point, provided that people keep donating and people that are aware of this, that we can maintain the supply. So uh, do you have a call to action? Do you want people, is there a website people should go to if they're... Actually, there is. There, is, there has been call to actions. I can give you one website in which we have all the resources, which is our website, which is ccpp19.org. If you go there, a lot of the resources for everything you want to know about plasma protocols, everything is in place. We'll be back right after this. So you start out with uh, this whole, the blood serum's got all the antibodies that anybody ever had. When you get when you get somebody's blood plasma, you're getting all of his or her antibodies. But now you all have got a way to dial it in, so-called monoclonal right. antibodies. What what is that? So what monoclonal 
antibodies. That means that you can make a single, one of those millions or billions of antibodies, you can take one of those and you can grow it in the laboratory. You can take the cells that make it, the factories, and then you could have a preparation that is homogeneous, standardized, and forever constant. Because one of the problems, convalescent plasma, is that every unit is different. Yeah, exactly. You're getting and and by by the way, do you suddenly get immune to a whole bunch of other stuff that you your body never encountered? You get immune to whatever your donor was immune to. Yeah, wow. Uh, and it, and it lasts a few weeks at least. It just seems like by doing this, you you clone them right in conventional, That's like right. in petri dish kind of fashion, right? That's right. So it's just more efficient when you give it to the person. So that is being done. That is being done, and I ha- and it's existing technology. And I have no doubt that there will be many of these available in the future. The question is, the problem is that that is the future. We, right now, they're not available. Uh, They may be available late fall, early winter. But between now and then, uh, convalescent plasma is the only game in town. What's immunoglobulin treatment? What's that? Immunoglobulin is a technical term for antibody. Oh, so okay. when you, if I said to you immunoglobin, I'm saying antibody and, and vice versa. Yeah. When were antibodies discovered? Uh, they were discovered in 1890 or so when Bombering uh, and, and, uh, and Kitasato showed that you could transfer immunity in the liquid part of the blood. Of course, it would take two or three decades before they figure out that there were proteins, that there were individual molecules, what the molecular mass, all that will follow decades later. But the concept, that when you get sick, you mount something in the liquid of the blood that protects you and can protect others dates from the last decade of the 19th century. If you were in charge, what would you want to change? What would you want to tell people? Uh, well, there's a lot of things I want to tell people, but vis-a-vis this, uh, <laughs> I think you want to hurt. <laughs> you want to hurry. Um, you want to use convalescent plasma as a stop guide measure until we have better drugs and better therapies available. I'm an optimist. I think we're going to have vaccines. We're going to have antivirals. We're going to kick the mortality of this thing down to, to a fraction of what it is today. And in the meantime, we got to figure out how to make the plasma work better. And we are working really hard to sort out how to use it, how to use it best. And then that will inform everything that follows. It will even inform vaccine design, because if you know what plasma is effective, that's the immune response that you want to elicit. So I think that this is foundational. I think that the efforts here, even though they're stopgap, even though we are not a pharmaceutical company, we are you know, a bunch of academics and physicians uh, trying to fight this from the trenches, are going to inform a lot of what follows. Okay, so hang on. You're, call- you're using the term stopgap. And that's remarkable to me because it is apparently very, very effective, right? You know, as a physician, as a scientist, I'm careful with being definitive. If you asked me in March, Arturo, is this work? I would have said to you, maybe. History supported. If you asked me in April, May, and June, I would say to you, possibly, it's possibly. The early indicators are, are good. If you asked me today, I would say you probably. So you can see that my level of certainty is increasing, but I'm waiting for the definitive information, which is randomized controlled trials, because that is the best evidence that we can get in medicine. 
Okay, so compare this with the other things you hear about. Well, there is one that has been that has been used called Rendisivir. Yeah, that's going to so Rendisivir. Yeah. The data are pretty good that it helps you recover, but it has not been shown to have an effect on mortality. So I think that that's an early antiviral. I think we're going to be able to make much more powerful ones in the future. Okay, okay, okay. Give me that again. So I've gotten sick. Uh, I'm starting to recover. Then you all give me remdesivir, and I recover more quickly. But if I was going to die, I would have died anyway? Well, that's, that's interesting. It, it would, no, I mean, I, what I would say to you is that the clinical trial, the data that we have is that it showed that Bill will recover faster. But when they look at mortality, they weren't able to show a difference in mortality. It may be there. It may very well be that if you use it earlier or if you had a larger data set, that you will show it. And I can tell you that a lot of work is going in this regard. But as a drug, uh, it's, you know, it's an advance. Look, the way I look at this is March 1st, the only difference in March 1st between 1918 is that we had supplemental oxygen and respirators. Uh-huh. Four months later, if you get sick, we have convalescent plasma when this severe. And for the people who get really into trouble, dextamethasone, which is a steroid. So things are progressing. So hydroxychloroquine, where, where did that fit in? So hydroxychloroquine was shown by some early studies to have some antiviral effects. However, when it was studied in the larger population, it did not have them. And in fact, hydroxychloroquine can have effects on the heart rate. Or, and, the, and there has been a lot of controversy as to whether it does uh, more harm than good. All right, so in any of these, or, or these two cases, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, they're not prophylactic. That is to say, taking them ahead of time doesn't, or doesn't seem to help. Is that true? Because this is the kind of thing you people wonder about all the time. Yeah, I think, I think that the, you, with remdesivir, that, is, that hasn't been tested. With, with hydroxychloroquine, there has been a prophylactic trial, although I'm not sure it's been completed yet. I, I don't have information on it. The good thing about convalescent plasma is that antibody can be used prophylactically. And here at Johns Hopkins, we have two trials looking in the outpatient space. So one of them asks the question, if you are a first responder, for example, if you have a major exposure, if you're taking care of somebody at home who is sick with COVID-19 and they give you a unit of plasma, are you protected? That's the prophylactic trial. The second trial looks at early disease. So you're sitting at home, you're short of breath, you have a fever, you have cough. But we know that most of the people get better. It's so, a small minority of them have to go to the hospital. And those are the ones who can get progressively sick and go to the intensive care unit. The question is, if you give them a unit of plasma, do you prevent them from getting worse? So those trials are going on and uh, they're recruiting uh, patients. And uh, we hope to learn a lot from them because this could provide yet another weapon for keeping people out of a hospital and for stopping this disease. So another amazing thing to me about this whole thing, you guys, by that I mean the medical community, immunological, epidemiological community, if you get a vaccine that is 50% effective, that's really good, right? Yeah, well, if you get it, yeah, because you can interrupt disease in 50% of the people. That's pretty good. I mean, you want it to be 100%. You want it to be higher. 
But I, I, I be, you know, I celebrate because if you can make 50% of the people immune, that's 50% of the people who are not going to get disease. And if they run into the virus, it's a dead end for the virus. So how long is this thing going to be around? We're going to be living with coronavirus the rest of our lives. Is it going to mutate the way the flu does, the way the common cold viruses do? So there are indications that the virus is already mutating, but it doesn't mutate very fast. And, uh, you know, I, I am an optimist. I think that there, if humanity puts its mind to it, this is, a, this is a disease that is controllable and potentially eradicable. So the question that you ask, how long are we going to be in this, pro- in this situation? I turn around and said, when can we put society back together the way we knew it? Uh, that is, so you can go to restaurants, you don't have to worry about social distancing. I think that would happen when we have an effective vaccine. Because once you do that, you'll interrupt transmission. And once you interrupt transmission, then a lot of the routines of of life can come back to normal. Do you think the government should be more involved? Well, I can tell you that the government is very involved. They're certainly pouring money into uh, into, into this area. Uh, my interaction into convalescent. Uh... Well, yes. I mean, the for example, they're funding these trials. Uh, the Department of Defense is funding these trials here at Hopkins, uh, and they are generously supporting a lot of the work. And my interactions with government agencies have been extremely positive. Look, everybody, everybody wants to do the right thing here, and everybody wants to to to, to work very hard. But it sounds like it started with a bunch of academic buddies. And, and it's still it, a bunch of academics. And it's grown to this much bigger thing. Right. But, you know, we have the support of the FDA. Uh, the people, we talk to the FDA a lot. There's a lot of contact with government agencies. And uh, I, I have only good things to say about my colleagues in government. They are working really hard to identify regulatory roadblocks and things like that. I'm optimistic and I'm optimistic uh, that, you know, this ground roots organization was able to do to bring in a new therapy that the FDA worked really hard to loosen the regulatory uh, steps that, to bring it that everybody everybody's working on this 200%. That's fantastic. The website everybody is ccpp19.org. Just four letters 19.org and the four letters stand for covid convalescent plasma project 19.org. And you can, if you have the plasma, you can become a donor and get involved in changing the world. So thank you so much, Arturo. Thank you so much for taking the time and telling us about these, this remarkable research and all these, um, to me, fascinating details of antibodies and how you all go about isolating them and providing them, or one day providing them to everybody. Thanks so much. Our guest today has been Arturo Casadevall. He is the Chair of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So leave us a voicemail with your questions. The number is 201-472-0785, 201-472-0785. Or you can go to what I'm sure is your homepage, askbillnye.com. We're taping two new episodes, so please especially send us questions for them. We've got Dorothy Roberts on racism in science and medicine, and Jane Fonda on environmental activism. I'm Bill Nye, and my friends, this is a pandemic. It's worldwide. We are all in this together. 
And now more than ever, everyone, science rules. If you like Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us know what you want to hear. So thank you. Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is produced by Harry Huggins and our own Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Louis Fleming again, who also mixed this episode. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, science rules. So a few more things. Wash your hands, wear a mask. And if you have recovered and you want to participate in convalescent serum, check out ccpp19.org. Let's change the world, everyone. Be safe out there. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.